listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetsluk, and today it is the morning of Friday, the 26th of November in Seoul, and I'm joined via Zoom uh, by Mike Chinoy in Hong Kong to talk to me about his experience of reporting on North Korea from within North Korea. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you, please, to leave a review about this podcast wherever you can, uh, and that's so that people can discover our podcast more easily. No reviews means that the all-powerful algorithm pushes us down the internet podcast rabbit hole into the abyss of ignorance and no new people will ever listen to us. So please do leave a review. And while you're at it, please share this podcast with everyone you know and three people you don't. I'd really like, it would be a nice Christmas present to reach 1%, a tiny 1% of Joe Rogan's audience before Christmas. So let's see how we can do with that. Uh, Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. Thirdly, have you looked at the 2022 NK News wall calendar? I've got one right here, ready to hang up at the end of the year. It's got 14 wonderful photos taken in North Korea by non-North Korean photographers. There are only 850 available for purchase, so stocks will run out. It's a great limited edition gift idea for Christmas, which is just around the corner. You can get your hands on that and also the North Korea leadership chart that's on the wall behind me at nknews.org slash shop. If you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. So to introduce my guest today properly, Mike Chinoy is the non-resident or a non-resident senior fellow at the University of Southern California's US-China Institute and a former senior Asia correspondent at CNN having joined in 1983 in London and leaving in 2006. He was a foreign correspondent for more than 30 years. He's the author of four books, including his book, 2008 book, Meltdown, the inside story of the North Korean nuclear crisis and has visited North Korea 17 times. You can find Mike on Twitter at Mike Chinoy, one word that's M-I-K-E-C-H-I-N-O-Y. Mike, thanks for coming on the NK News podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. The reason that we're doing this interview now is that we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of uh, the Wire Bureau or Wire Service AP, which opened its own bureau in Pyongyang. So I thought it was a good time to do a a mini series on the work of doing journalism from within North Korea. Uh, Were you the first correspondent for CNN to report from actually inside the country? Yes, I was the first correspondent from CNN. Uh, to go to North Korea. That visit happened in August of 1989. Uh, I was the CNN bureau chief in Beijing. Uh, That was a tumultuous year. We just had the crackdown in Tiananmen Square um, earlier that summer. And the North Koreans uh, were uh, hosting a big international youth festival. And at the end of that, uh, a left-wing South Korean student named Im Soo-kyung uh, who'd gone to Pyongyang, had announced plans as a, as a symbol of the longing for the unification of the Korean peninsula, that she was going to go back to South Korea by walking across the DMZ at Panmunjom. And so the North Koreans decided that they would invite a very small number of Beijing-based uh-huh. journalists to cover this event. Uh, they actually sent a, a special uh, plane Uh, a rickety old Antonov, uh, but quite luxuriously outfitted inside. Uh, And I flew with my my camera crew and we were we followed Im Soo-kyung on this quite remarkable journey she made from Pyongyang uh, down to the DMZ with large crowds turned out uh, to to cheer her on. And then this dramatic moment uh, amidst much uh, weeping and wailing and embracing where she uh, said farewell to her North Korean hosts and then walked across the DMZ and was immediately arrested and sent off to jail. Uh, and, and after that, since we were there, the North Koreans allowed us to stay for a couple of days, although, as was always the case in North Korea, uh, getting out and doing very much was extremely difficult and doing anything without presence of, of guides and minders and so on was impossible. But it did allow us to do a piece about sort of our impressions of North Korea at the time. So yes, that was that was the first of, of what would become 14 trips for CNN and 17 overall. Right. Uh, well, yeah, I, um, 
I've always been fascinated by that uh, 13th World Festival of uh, Youth and Students that was held in 1989. So if I understand correctly, you missed the actual festival, but came at the end of it for the Im Suk Yong uh, spectacle. Is that right? That's right. We, did, we, we didn't go to, to the festival, but uh, we were allowed, we were brought in mm -hmm. essentially to cover her departure uh, from, from the North and then, and then just allowed to stay stay on a couple of days so uh it was a first glimpse I, I wouldn't say i got to see very much but as is always the case with north korea seeing a little bit in my view is better than seeing nothing at all yes uh, and we'll, we'll come to that uh, that question of, of value added but uh, but im Suk yong did you ever uh, meet her again or do an interview with her no i never did I, I i would i would have liked to it would be interesting to know now what what she thinks about that 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 whole experience. I mean, it was it was quite a remarkable thing. She had this giant, uh, it looked like a, a, a open air kind of limousine that she would stand up in and wave to these crowds. And and the North Koreans are are very good at producing crowds yeah. whenever they need to. So she would drive through, uh, leaving Pyongyang and then going through Kaesong. There were huge crowds out cheering her every 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 step of of the way and 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 then and then we watched her walk across the dmz and immediately get arrested i met her here in seoul uh, a couple of years ago uh, and uh, ironically she was introduced to me by the son of then south korean president no Teu. Uh, so her, <laughs> her son we were at a uh, at a hungarian diplomatic uh, event uh, and i said Gee, it'd be great to meet him so young. And, he, and he said, oh, she's standing over there. Let me go and introduce you to her. So we walked over and said hi. And I've met her a couple of times since and I've tried desperately to get her on the podcast to give her own impressions firsthand. But I think she's done with, with all that life now. I don't think yeah. she does public mm -hmm. appearances anymore. She uh, certainly was reluctant to, yeah. uh, to come on the show, which is unfortunate. Right. But yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly a, a, still a story that fascinates me, that whole period there where there were eight to 10,000 foreign students running around, well, doing things in Pyongyang, uh, you know, one of the largest um, groups of foreigners ever in North Korea, certainly since the war. Right, right. Uh, but as you said, so seeing a little of North Korea is better than seeing nothing. And I guess the, the big question is with the government controls there, what's the value added of, of reporting on North Korea from inside North Korea? I think there is value in just you know, sniffing the breeze, getting a sense of what it what it feels like. Uh, I wouldn't uh, on that. I, I think it's fair to say in my case, over the course of multiple visits, and I'm happy to talk about those subsequent visits and mm. the kind of relationship that we developed, that CNN developed with the North Koreans, it did give us, uh, in some respects, remarkable access to the leadership and to some although hardly by any stretch, a, a, a lot of, of, of the country. Um, but one of the problems with North Korea is that from the outside, given both the level of, of ignorance, lack of information, uh, suspicion, hostility, uh, exacerbated by North Korea's own often very uh, truculent and over-the-top propaganda and, and rhetoric, really colors its interactions with the world. And I think going there, and, and this was for me a process that unfolded over multiple visit, visits, but going there uh, does give you a sense that uh, beyond the cartoon caricatures, this is a living, breathing country of 22 or 23 million people, uh, real human beings who, get up every day and do things that real human beings do yeah. and that it's more complicated and it's more nuanced and th there are gradations in sort of how you what you see and what you can learn that give you a sense of this place as a living breathing entity and you simply can't get that from the outside perusing north the north korean media which you folks know how to do very, very well, is absolutely an essential tool. And I think one of the problems in the coverage over many decades has been uh, a lack of sophistication on the part of a lot of the journalists who write about North Korea right. or who sound off about North Korea from a distance, is not being able to understand 
how the North Korean media works and how to make sense of what they say and so on. But seeing it for yourself, just getting a sense of what it looks what it looks like on the ground, even if all you see is out of the window of your car or on the road from Pyongyang to the demilitarized zone or to the statue of the Kim, or now the two statues of the Kims in, in Pyongyang, it gives you a little bit better sense of the place. And our experience at CNN was fascinating because the next time I went to North Korea was in 1991, and it was to accompany uh, the American evangelist, the Reverend Billy Graham, who was an unlikely, on the face of an unlikely visitor to North Korea. Yeah. But uh, he, he had a track record of visiting many countries in the socialist bloc over, over the years. And his wife, Ruth, uh, had actually gone to school in Pyongyang in the 1930s because her parents were missionaries. Yeah. Um, and so, and so uh, he went, and again, after complicated, protracted discussions between the Graham organization, the North, Korean, the North Koreans and CNN, uh, I was allowed, along with a cameraman, to go with him. And so we flew with him on his plane. And he was taken to meet Kim Il-sung. And we were allowed, we didn't anticipate this, but we were allowed to go along and, and meet him. And, and it's actually kind of funny when that morning our guides came in and said, you must wear your, your best clothing, very important uh, meeting. Uh, do you have a gift? Uh -huh. And I said, I had no idea. I didn't bring and brought anything. Luckily, I had a little box with a CNN pen. Mm. So I said to the guide, I said, can I can give this to Kim Il-sung, he can use it to write great works of ideology. And they said, okay, that's fine. So we went and Graham met him and we, we videoed the whole thing. And then we got a chance to shake his hand and have our photo taken and so on. And that, that was the first time that, that I met him. And then in, in 1994, I'm sorry. And then in, I met him three other times in 92 and twice in 94. So that, that, to me, you know, underscores the value of, of access and, uh, to just to get a sense of what somebody like that was like was was hugely helpful for me in, in trying to put together a broader picture of kind of where North Korea was going and particularly on the sort of policy level and leadership level. Were you able to to get an interview with Kim Il-sung himself? Not as such, but in 1992, we went back again with, uh, again, a very small group of journalists orga organized by the, no, it's not 92, it's 94, uh, organized by, by the Moonies. Okay, yep. And, and, and they... Um, Was that with the, uh, with the Washington Times? With the Washington Times, sure. yeah. yeah. Um, and they, they had been asked to organize a delegation of so-called international VIPs to go to North Korea to mark Kim's 82nd birthday in April of, of, of 90, uh, 94, uh, isn't it? 94, yeah, which right, is just, yeah. just two months or so. Before two, months, two months before he died. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and this, this delegation was, uh, they had a kind of meeting with Kim and we were allowed, you know, the photo ops. Mm -hmm. We were allowed the video about 15 minutes. And it was the first time that Kim had spoken with a camera rolling, with a Western camera rolling about the nuclear issue. Uh, so it was pretty significant. And then there was this memorable lunch that he hosted for uh, our group. So there were about 15, 17, including these, the, this uh, uh, group of so-called international VIPs, which was, there was a prince from Laos and a former foreign minister of Costa Rica. It was not exactly international heavyweights, but anyway, it was the best the Moonies could come up with. And then us and the Japanese TV crew and the people from the Washington Times. And so we had 90 minutes at lunch with him. Uh, no cameras rolling, but just, you know, here you are at mm. a round table with, you know, the man who was the contemporary of Mao and Stalin, the guy who started the Korean War, who created this extraordinary personality cult. And to see him, you know, in the flesh yeah. was absolutely fascinating, uh, and 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 made him a much more real figure. And you got uh, what's it? I mean, Kim came across, you know, he had this deep, deep, gravelly voice, uh, and he definitely 
he had he had presence he had it whether you agree or disagree with what he did he definitely had you knew you were in the presence of a major historical figure yeah. but he came across as this kind of you know avuncular old fellow you know happy to tell stories about his children and and, and and he didn't come across as a kind of crazed monster, which is the way he was portrayed. Okay, yeah. And and to me, uh, and, and he, he clearly signaled there an interest in talking with the United States, with the dialogue with the United States, although it took the Jimmy Carter trip in June of 1994 yeah. uh, before uh, the spiral towards, looked like a very scary spiral towards conflict was stopped and I, I was we can talk about this because I was lucky enough to be uh, the only journalist to go with Carter mm. uh, in 94 but it was fascinating to sort of you know get a sense of Kim and then to broadcast it with, with because it was the first uh, between the the images that we shot of of uh, of him talking with this group and the insights that we gleaned from the the broader interaction with him over 90 minutes um, you you did get a little bit of a of a picture of 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 him as a as as a human being, and so we brought we broadcast this in in in, in a memorable live report from Pyongyang TV. You broadcast the luncheon itself, not the luncheon, okay. but but uh, after the lunch we went to the TV station and uh, they'd never really done live broadcasts before, and we had to sort of explain to them how this would work and and and. Uh, because of what we were we were sending back images and and the speaking of the great leader, they were you know willing to let us. They were willing to do this, but the logistics were incredibly complicated. Uh, there was no international phone line, right? North Korean TV, so uh, we had to have my cameraman was on the phone with the producer who was back at the Corio Hotel, who was on an international call to the uh, CNN international desk. Um, so we couldn't have any live Q and A with with the anchor, but but the the cameraman gave me these cue cards for you know one minute, thirty seconds, fifteen seconds. At which point I could either start or stop talking. Right. Um, and so we sent we sent the video of Kim and and with the sound bites of him talking about denying that he had an active nuclear program and indicating he wanted better relations with the U.S. And we broadcast these and I talked about them. So in the very small world of sort of journalistic landmarks from North Korea, that goes down as the first live shot from Pyongyang. Right, yeah. Uh, la later, there were more that we did and that others would do as the North Koreans became more welcoming and they got more sophisticated. Eventually, you could actually make a call from DPRK TV. But at the time, it was all very rudimentary conditions for, for something like that. Just to, to sort of summarize um, the uh, the live appearance of Kim Il Sung on on CNN America, would you, would that be classified as an interview, or was that just him talking his own talking points and and being broadcast? Yeah, that that was that was him talking. That that was video of him talking from a, a meeting he had <laughs> at the Kung Su Sung Palace with this delegation that the Moonies had organized, and we were given the photo op the right. way and you know the way that the press are usually given you know a few minutes at the beginning of any high level meeting uh, we were there a while i mean we weren't ushered out after 90 seconds yeah. we were there long enough to actually record him saying something substantive which was again sort of signals of an openness to try right. and resolve the at that point increasingly tense controversy about the north's nuclear program which he at that time flatly denied, right? He said, we do not have, he did not. we do not seek did, to have nuclear did. weapons. Right. And at that point, American intelligence, if you look, go back and look, they, they were saying that the North had maybe enough weapons grade plutonium for one or two bombs, but they hadn't made a bomb mm -hmm. and they certainly hadn't staged right. the test. So it, you know, um, jumping around here a little bit, but one of the sort of great what ifs in history is, you know, what if the, the diplomacy had gone better and the North had not crossed the nuclear Rubicon of actually making and testing a bomb, which I think is when everything changed in, in, in 2006. But that, back then, I mean, they, they had a reactor yeah. that was producing plutonium. 
but they were, it was very early days. There is a debate which I think, you know, continues, to which there is no clear cut answer about whether this was all preordained and there was, the North was going to have a bomb regardless and, and everything else was just background noise. Yeah or whether there was a real possibility, particularly at that early stage, that they might have actually given it up in return for actually getting right. you know, meaningful, significant benefits. I tend to come down on the, that was a possibility, that it's not preordained, that they were always gonna have a bomb, at least at that early stage. But of course, there's, you, know, you can make arguments either way. Right. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but you're not a, a Korean speaker, is that right? That's correct. I'm not a Korean speaker. I'm a Chinese speaker. But in North Korea, we, we had to rely on interpreters. Right. And now, when you go to other countries, you can often bring your own interpreters with you. But I'm guessing here that you are relying on North Korean provided government interpreters. Is that correct? That, that's correct. And there was a period... I think well into the 2000s where where the north koreans did not want korean speakers to come with journalists they didn't they didn't they didn't yeah. like not having that control and in fact the the dynamic on on most of these trips was that you had a couple of guides a slash guide slash interpreter slash minder and they 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 would go they would meet you at the airport they would escort you everywhere the only time you didn't have them in your company was when you were in the hotel mm. uh, and 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 so everything that you you know they they decided where you went and any interactions that you had with anyone else in the country you know, they were there, they had to, oh, if they didn't approve it, you didn't have the interaction and they did the translating and so forth. I, I don't recall any instances in which they deliberately didn't translate something that somebody said, but the level of control was such in terms of who we would speak to that that wasn't an issue. You weren't going to sort of secretly get somebody signaling something that the government didn't like that the interpreters had to but it, it would be difficult to verify if the interpreter massaged the message in a certain way wouldn't it right well although you know we would go back to beijing or later after uh 96 when i moved to hong kong um and have people who were korean speakers listen and i that that was not a problem and the the interpreters were the ones that we dealt with were pretty impressive people and, and pretty smart. Uh, and in, uh, there was one in particular uh, who spoke extremely good British accented English. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I was, when, when Madeleine Albright, Secretary of State Albright went to Pyongyang in uh, the autumn of 2000, I didn't go on that trip. I was there the month before, but I looked at the photos of her with Kim Jong-il yeah. And who's in between them but my interpreter? The same one, right. So these were people who, who when, they, when you had conversations with them and you were with them for hours and hours and hours on you know, drives to the DMZ or to this place or that place or meals and so on, they were more than just you know, interpreters who you know just pressing a button and tra translating. They, they were people who were pretty senior and well-informed and you could have you could have really pretty thoughtful conversations with them and they weren't simply regurgitating the kcna wire right. or they certainly stuck to the talking points but you could have real discussions with them and so i found that was a very useful source of of, of insights about north korean thinking to what extent is not having a korean speaker on your team there on the ground at that moment, uh, a handicap when doing news gathering? Obviously, if you don't have to rely on them, in terms of interacting with people, if you had your, if, you, if, if, if I could have spoken Korean myself or had a, a, somebody in my team, obviously you, you could have, a, a, from your side at least, a more easy interaction. Whether you would get any different responses from anybody, I don't really know. And, and for me, I mean, I worked all over the world. And so I was used to dealing with interpreters as a journalist. And it's, it was not 
that that was not a problem. You know, one of the things was, you know, you 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 could over. I, I presume if you if you had somebody on sort of on your side in a sense, you could overhear conversations on the street, or you could see, you know, you could see things written, or you you obviously you would get a a a, a better sense than 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 not. Uh, but that simply wasn't what wasn't on on the cards. I should say one of the things that was fascinating to me was because of this, the fact that I met Kim Il-sung with, with Billy Graham in, in 92 and then uh, in, in the spring of 94, and then again uh, when Jimmy Carter, President Carter went, former President Carter went, and, and CNN was the only news organization allowed to cover him. The, the result was that that, cre and that that kind of laid the groundwork for CNN to have this quite unusual relationship with the DPRK for many years after. Mm. Um, and it was not that uh, we in any ways, in any way, you know, pulled our punches or sugarcoated the things that uh, had to be addressed. But the, the having met him kind of legitimized us in North Korean eyes and, and opened certain doors. The Carter trip in particular, I think, was hugely important, both because of the role that CNN played during the trip, which is absolutely fascinating, and then what came afterwards. The, the, when the North Koreans allowed CNN to come in to cover the Carter trip, largely on the basis of what we had done uh, earlier that spring by broadcasting the great leader's comments that we'd recorded when we'd been in for his, his his birthday. And I think that brought home to the North Korean leadership the power of CNN. Don't forget back then, there wasn't any BBC World, there wasn't any Fox News, right. there wasn't any Al Jazeera. CNN was it, it was the only network that went all over the world. And so suddenly the North Koreans saw the words of Kim Il-sung mm. beam not only into living rooms all over the globe, but into foreign ministries and presidential offices. And they realized that the influence CNN had. And I think that explains the, the, the invitation. And then on, on that trip, Carter uh, used CNN to sort of force the Clinton administration into a shift in policy because the the the, da the danger was the Americans were talking about going to the UN to impose sanctions because the North was was had withdrawn from the Non-Proliferation Treaty and it looked like they were moving ahead on their nuclear program. Yeah. Uh, and and the, and the North Koreans had said, if you go to the UN, that that's an act of war mm. and tensions were very, very high. And Carter, uh, in his meetings with Kim, came up with this compromise where if the Americans would back off the sanctions and agree to talks, Kim agreed to hold off on the nuclear front. And so Carter announced this agreement to us on, on CNN uh, without the White House having agreed to it. And of course, he was acting completely in his own capacity as He's a civilian. Acting completely, completely on his own, at much to the consternation of the Clinton White House. And there's a famous photograph that shows the White House Situation Room with the Vice President and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and various others. And they're watching Carter on this monitor declare a deal that they'd not signed off on. But once he got the North Koreans to commit to doing mm. what the Americans wanted them to do, the Americans kind of had to go along with it. And so within 48 hours of Carter using CNN to make this announcement, the Clinton administration has had, had backed off and it looked like the crisis was diffused. And, and I, for one, and, and I know I have, I have uh, friends and uh, people I know in, who were American diplomats at the time who were absolutely convinced that Jimmy Carter uh, saved us from a, a second Korean War had that trip not happened. And of course, Kim Il-sung died about two weeks yeah. later. Yeah. I was in Geneva covering the first meeting uh, of the negotiations that would lead to the agreed framework right. when, when, when he died. And, you know, if you if that trip had not happened and he had died in this period of intense tension and hostility, then carrying out the last wishes of the great leader would have been a different direction than he died after indicating a desire for a rapprochement and a negotiated settlement with the United States, which then put 
Kim Jong-il in the position, well, if that's what the last wishes of the great leader are, we pursue them. Right. And so that was, I think, one of the reasons why after a brief hiatus because of the, the death in the morning, uh, the negotiations went ahead. And by October, October of that year, they, they, uh, uh, they, they reached an agreement. So I think I think with the benefit of hindsight, the Carter trip was hugely important, and I feel extremely lucky to have have been an eyewitness to it. Well, I want to ask: to, to what extent did you have a feeling at that time when you were broadcasting these remarks uh, by Jimmy Carter back to America? Did you have a feeling we're not just just doing uh, news gathering here; we're actually influencing government policy? Yeah, you 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 did you did get a sense that that. You were making history, and and um, you know, my, my, CNN's role at that point was quite interesting. I remember actually in April of that year uh, when I was I got the invitation to go for Kim Il Sung's birthday. I got a call at midnight in my apartment in Beijing from Robert Gallucci, okay. who was the main sort of arms control North Korea point man for the Clinton administration, and would lay, uh, at later negotiate the agreed framework. Uh, and he called me and he said, I'm not asking you to convey a message directly, but if the North Koreans ask you about American thinking, would you please tell them that we are open to negotiations and so on? So I, end, I ended up sort of conveying messages, but my feeling was if either side wants to use me slash CNN for that purpose, that's fine. I'm just going to put everything I learn on the air. So it's not that I was doing or saying anything that was I was keeping to myself and not sharing with, with the audience. But did um, that give you any reluctance that you were now part of the story, that you had sort of stopped being the neutral observer, as it were? You know. Well, I mean, you hate to become part of the story as a journalist, but the role that was being played was that of communicating. And everything that was being done, there was nothing that was being done that what that the audience didn't know about. Mm -hmm. It wasn't for. I mean, there's a famous episode in the in the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 where the ABC News UN correspondent went and had a private meeting with the Soviet delegation to the UN and was conveying messages on behalf of the Kennedy administration, and it was all secret. Right. That is absolutely not what was happening here. Everything mm -hmm. that I heard, I told the audience. Um, mm. But it was one of the very early cases where CNN, because it was uh, on the air 24 hours a day, and because uh, you, you had both the airtime and, and, and we had this access, ended up being part of, of the story simply because we were the vehicle through which the two sides were communicating. But the communication that was going on was also being seen by anybody with the television right. set who wanted to tune in. So, so in, you know, in, in, in that sense, you know, it, it was, I was a little uncomfortable feel. You didn't want to be, you didn't want not to have, you know, to be, be part of the story, but we ended up being that. And then as a result of that, uh, CNN received multiple invitations from the North Koreans over the next several years. Mm. And they, you know, I think they're, they weren't doing things because they were a great believer in international media coverage or anything like that. They had, like any political figure or organization, their goal was to manipulate the press to their ends or, or use the press to convey a message. And uh, part of what you do as a reporter is you report what you see and hear. So there is kind of synergy there. And the North throughout the 90s, I think, used CNN when they weren't having much in the way of good communication with the Americans, especially, to send signals either uh, to, the, to the American administration about their position on certain issues, um, or to send signals more broadly that you know the, the 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 conventional wisdom about North Korea being on the brink of collapse. Mm. I mean, the, you forget in the '90s, especially after, after Kim Il Sung died, you know there was all this speculation that yeah. Kim Jong Il wasn't going to last a month, wasn't going to last a year. That nobody knew anything about him. That he was seen as this weird, flaky figure. And then you had the 
the, 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 the floods in 95 and then the famine. And so the, the, the narrative in the international media was, you know, massive crisis, humanitarian crisis, which is absolutely true, leading to the system can't hold. And uh, which turned out not to be true. And the, for example, in, 1990, in spring of 1997, I was invited with a camera crew to Pyongyang and there was a big uh, a military parade. It was a good story, great video. I watched you, know, you here inside. in South Korea. I was watching it that time yeah. in spring of 97. Yeah. But I, my calculation was, why were they doing this? It wasn't because they loved Mike Chinoy. It was because they wanted to send a signal to the rest of the world. You may think just because we're in the grip of a famine that our system is crumbling and that we are we can be, you know, one swift push and over we go a la Eastern Europe. Right. And so to have CNN cameras show the world that they could still pull off a a uh, massively impressive parade with thousands of goose-stepping soldiers and all the rest of it was a way to send a signal: don't mess with us, don't 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 misconstrue uh, what's happening with the famine and the food shortages. That that we're an easy target like the Soviet bloc. You you, know, you can't underestimate how much what happened in the early '90s with the collapse of Eastern Europe. Socialist bloc in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union freaked the North Koreans out. And so I think they were at pains to try and find every way they could to signal just because we're having these problems doesn't mean we're going the same route. And 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 allowing access to CNN was one of the ways they, they sent that message. But was there ever talk of CNN opening a permanent bureau in Pyongyang? Was that something that you either uh, suggested or the North Koreans requested? We CNN always asked. It would have been a great cachet, you know, get Feather and CNN's cap to open the first bureau in Pyongyang. It never went anywhere. I mean, the North Koreans sort of never said no, but they clearly never uh, did anything. But there was frenzied speculation about it. And I remember uh, one trip with my foreign editor at the time, uh, Eason Jordan. I, I don't honestly remember what year it was. Uh, maybe late 90s, and we'd been in Pyongyang and we were going to Seoul. So we went to Beijing and we changed planes and we got on the flight to Seoul and we picked up one of the English language Korean uh, newspapers. And there was a big article and we'd just been discussing this with the North Koreans. Can we have a bureau? Right. And it was like, well, maybe someday and nothing, nothing happened. And there was a big article that the CNN was going to open a bureau in Pyongyang and the bureau was going to have 12 people, and there was going to be a cameraman who was a Korean-American of North Korean extraction. Gosh. You know, and I'm reading this, having just come from meetings with my colleague in Pyongyang, where we got nowhere. Yeah. And so I thought it was a very good, it was a very good example of how much misinformation, particularly in the South Korean media, get gets out. But it never happened. And then um, then the Bush administration came in and U.S. Uh, relations with the North uh, nosedived. And there was a period of several years where uh, CNN didn't get in. Mm. And I think they weren't sure what their messaging was going to be. And so and so so it never happened. And that's why. And the, the AP, in the meantime, made very, very. Uh, strenuous efforts over many years to cultivate the North Koreans, yeah. which led to their opening of the bureau. Would you have volunteered for a long-term assignment in Pyongyang if a bureau had opened? It's a very tough question. I, I you know, I, I, I had a family, and uh, I'm not sure whether I, it would have been very hard to turn down. Yeah. But I'm glad I didn't have to make the choice. <laughs> and of course, CNN uh, made its international name and reputation during the first Gulf War in in early 1991. That's when I, uh, living in Australia, first became aware of CNN. And, you know, at that time, right. if I remember rightly, Australian television stations, we did not yet have cable. And so the terrestrial stations would, would simply shut down around midnight. Uh, and, right. and so one of the networks, I forget which one it was, uh, simply played CNN as a filler from midnight till when they started broadcasting again the next morning. And, and it was, you know, it was all Gulf War all the time. Uh, and right. I wonder... Uh, in the 1990s, when there were these discussions, when you know CNN was asking and North Korea was saying, "Well, maybe one day," was there a, a belief that something big would happen, either the war that, that might have happened in 1994 or the collapse of North Korea, and that CNN was going to be the one to get the big scoop inside? 
I don't think it, I don't think it was a calculation that oh we want to be in Pyongyang if there's a war. Although obviously, had there been a war, there would have been a great desire to cover it from the North Korean side. This was just, you mentioned the the first Gulf War. What what brought CNN to uh, international prominence was that uh, on the first night of the war. Uh, there were CNN people in Baghdad, most notably P uh, Peter Arnett, great war correspondent, and they managed to be live on the air when the first American bombs arrived. So live from Baghdad right. became this kind of signature moment, uh, you know, broadcasting from the enemy capital under a war. So I'm sure there were some people who had fantasies that if there was a Korean War, th that that would be a great thing to have. But um, I think it was just more you know, especially back then, very few, you know, North Korea became a, a, a more accessible destination with the passage of time, mm. uh, obviously up until COVID. Um, but back then, going to North Korea really was a big deal. I mean, it was kind of like going to the moon in terms of it was just absolutely unknown for sort of mainstream Western media. So I think just being on the ground was seen as attractive, although the reality, as I think the AP found out, is, is that it would have been extremely tough. Mm. When, when you went in as a visitor on a week or 10-day visa, you know, you had a specific program, they invited you for a specific reason, you had certain, you know, kind of high-level access. I think being on the ground like that you would just be lumped in with the rest of the very small international community. There's a, fa there's a fascinating parallel with China where the, uh, you know, before it opened up or even after it opened up to some degree where the resident correspondents, uh, Western correspondents got very little access and were pro deeply restricted, but it was the visiting VIP editor, Hotshots, who would get, you know, the the meeting with Deng Xiaoping or, or, or all of that kind of stuff. It was it was almost never uh, the folks on the ground. So I think in some ways, I mean, there as I, I strongly believe that the value of just having somebody there to sort of smell the air and see what's going on on the streets is better than not. But I think it would have become extremely frustrating and probably led to all sorts of tensions with the North Koreans when you actually tried to cover news beyond just the, wow, we're here for a week, let's see what we can see, or there's a major diplomatic international moment where the North has a message, which will, right. they'll give you access to, to send the message. Now you visited, so I think it would have been full of frustration. You visited 17 times in all. What was the, how long was the longest trip? It's a good question. Maybe 10, 12 days, something like that. They were all relatively short. Usually the trips were, were a week. Okay. And did you get to see much of the countryside outside Pyongyang? I, over time, yeah. Multiple trips to Kaesong, obviously, sure. in the DMZ. Um, in 95, we went to Wonsan, and I became the first journalist to visit the USS Pueblo, which was then moored in Wonsan, and that was a fascinating experience also because uh, we, we went on the Pueblo and we, you know, they had a guy there who they said had been part of the, the military unit that had seized it and so on. And so we did this story and then CNN got the skipper of the Pueblo and his deputy on the air in the States. And the skipper was very, very bitter. Uh, Booker, Booker, yeah, and he was like, you know, let's nuke North Korea now, and so on. Uh, his deputy had a very different attitude, uh, and so it was fascinating mm. to watch these two guys disagree with one another and also react to seeing right. their ship for the first time since they'd been taken off it in what was it, 1969? But um, particularly, uh, uh, you know, when when the floods came. Uh, they did take us into the countryside to see flood damage. So, you know, if you look at North Korea as a jigsaw puzzle of 100 pieces, you know, going there gives you a few pieces that you don't have if you're trying to put the jigsaw puzzle together. 
from the outside. Does it give you a complete picture? No. But, you know, if you go back frequently, and, and I would also make a point of talking to diplomats, and after the uh, after 90, 95, 96, there were aid people that you could talk to, and they, they were getting around much right. more. They were really going to the worsted areas, and some of them were taking video and so on. So it was possible to put together a picture that was largely, you know, was incomplete, but not wildly inaccurate. I would say. Does it mean that um, each time you went in on a trip, you pretty much knew before you went, this is uh, the story I'm going to do. Here's where I'm going to go. Was it? I mean, no, not not necessarily. You usually you would, you know, sometimes they would say, you know, come for the, the you know the anniversary of you know the the founding of the state or the founding of the army, and we knew there would be like a big parade. But we would go in and the, you would arrive in the, you would be met by your guides and you would go to the hotel and then you would sit down and you would have a meeting. And we would always come up with a, you know, a list and we would like to go here or like to go there right. and like to see this and like to see that. And sometimes they would say, here's your program and it bore no relationship with what we wanted. And sometimes they would say, we'll, we'll take it on board. Um, I'll give you an example of something where, where, you know, everybody, I mean, it's true. It's very rigid. It's very hard to change a pre-range program. But 90, maybe it was 98. Um, we, 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 98 or 99, we went to, we were at some big mass event. And there were all of these uh, military people, you know, and they all just in a, in a row. And in the middle of that, there was a guy who stood out. He was clearly head and shoulders taller than anyone else. And there was this famous North Korean basketball player, Michael Reed. He took Michael because he, he loved Michael Jordan. Right. And he had wanted to play in the NBA and it didn't work out for all sorts of political reasons and so on. So I said to the, I said to the guy, is that the basketball player? And he said, yes. I said, I would love to do a story about him. I think it's a fascinating story. Can you arrange mm -hmm. it? Sure enough, a day or two later, they come in and the guides come in and say, Michael Ree is on the agenda. So we went and we met this guy and we interviewed him. He had the largest feet of any human being. And he was, he was, he was even tall by American basketball standards, wasn't he? He was the he was like seven feet nine. Yeah, he was extremely, he was, yeah. You know, he's 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 a foot taller than LeBron James. Wow, okay. Um, and, and we did us, you know, when you do TV, you're, you're, you do what we call setup shots. It's like where you see the subject walking or you see the subject and in the interviewer, and it allows you to sort of introduce the person and show that the correspondent is on the scene. And then you cut to the actual interview. Right. So we did this walking shot on a street in Pyongyang. And it's me, you can actually find the picture on the internet. I look like I'm a four-year-old kid out with my father. It's, <laughs> um, but he, he, it was fascinating. And the story was very interesting because he wanted to play in the NBA and he'd actually been allowed to go to Canada for a year to train nice. and to bulk up. Um, but the American government wanted any salary paid to him, couldn't be remitted to North Korea because of the trading with the enemy act. Right. And the North Koreans wanted like three minders to go. I, can you imagine Michael Ree and three North Korean minders in the New York Knicks dressing room with all these basketball players? So it didn't work out. Right. So so it was this kind of the story. But there was, was also an issue with these knees, as I recall. Yeah, but but he had these dreams of playing in the NBA and the geopolitics meant that his dreams were thwarted right. uh it was a great story it was one of the most memorable stories i ever did and so it was a human interest story it told you something about uh u.s north korea relations you got a sense of an individual who was not just spouting cliches um and it told it's it was a good example to me of how if you're persistent and you're lucky and you have relationships built up over time doors can open in ways you wouldn't otherwise expect. Is that story on YouTube by, by any chance? 
Can people watch that uh, now? The piece itself is the piece itself is not. Uh, I don't think. If you have it on video, way. it'd be great if you could upload that. That'd be wonderful for people to see. Yeah, now. yeah. I don't know. I don't know where it is, but but I think the photo is the photo is there. It's one of the, as I say, I, I look I look like a midget. Uh, so you know things like that could happen. And the other thing that happened in the '90s was because of the relationship with Kim Il Sung, was that we we when when I went with for CNN. Uh, we usually had quite high level access in terms, not of putting anything on camera, but it's just in terms of meetings or dinners. And uh, interestingly, I spent eight years in Beijing as the CNN Beijing bureau chief. And I, I, I never had as consistent high level access to Chinese officials who would actually huh. share thinking as I had in North Korea. Uh, even though China was in so many other ways a much more open society, we would all we would usually and there was a guy named Kim Jong Soon, who was a secretary of the Korean Workers Party and I was reputed to be part of the royal family. And we met I met him in '94 after Kim Il Sung died. My foreign editor and I were the first Americans allowed to visit the DPRK two weeks later uh, without a crew. And but we brought a little camera with him, and he was our host, and he he took us out on this yacht, which he said was Kim Jong Il's yacht, and we spent a day on this yacht, uh, fishing, and talking with him, and we had other meetings with him, and it it was very interesting to get a sense of North Korean thinking, and also, for example, at that point, all the speculation outside the country was. North Korea is going to collapse. No. Kim Jong Il is a flake. It's it's not going to survive. So, you know, just to be in Pyongyang, to drive to Wonsan, to see Wonsan, to spend all this time with very senior people, he was not acting like somebody who was worried the edifice was going to crumble around him. And so I did stories that said, it's admittedly a very limited, you know, view, mm. but there's nothing that. I have seen or heard on this trip that suggests that North Korea is going to implode argument has any weight. And of course, I'm not such a great genius, but that's true. And here we are in 2021, yeah. it still hasn't imploded yeah. despite all the wishful thinking of so many people outside. So to me, that was, you know, that's another example of the, the value of going. Uh, you just get a sense of the place and it informs judgments in a way that may, maybe gives it a little, a little more solid than you would get sitting outside. Did you feel that there were any topics that were off limits that you, things that you couldn't ask about? Oh yeah, you had to be. You know, they're very, very sensitive. You had, you could raise certain things, but you know, you had to be careful. But I'll give you an example. Um, on that visit uh, after uh, in, after Kim Il Sung died. Our main goal, apart from seeing it, was to pitch an interview with Kim Jong-il, which, of course, neither we nor anyone else ever got. So I brought a whole collection of newspaper cuttings from Western media with all the most uh, negative, insulting things that you, know, you could think that were being written about Kim Jong-il. And I gave them to Kim Jong-un, and I said, this is what is being said about your dear leader. Now, if you want to counter it, the best way to counter it is let him go on CNN. Right. We're here. Of course, it didn't happen, right. but I was a little worried they were going to get very angry. But you know, they they weren't. But you where, where you were more likely to have problems was in in a story. They they would literally the minders would literally hover over your shoulder when you were editing and they would want to look at your scripts and so on. And if you, particularly when in the late nineties, when it became possible on every trip to do live shots, you know, if they didn't like what you said in a live shot, they would let you know. But what we developed a technique was for sensitive stories, like about the famine and so on, we would collect the elements, but we wouldn't feed those from DPRK TV. The stories we'd feed from DPRK TV would be like, the parade or something. Then we left the country, got back to Beijing or, or Hong Kong. Then we would, and I, I would have shot a stand-up 
and we would have gotten you know an interview with an international aid person and they would have slipped us a copy cassette of their video and so on but when those stories went on the air after we were there and then it didn't matter uh in terms of immediate reaction and it never seemed to matter enough for them to say you can't come ah. back <laughs> i assume they watched but you know yeah you try to be you try to be fair and you um but i mean one of the techniques for example you want to convey a sense of how strange it is was to use their own language in their own media so for example uh you want to say uh you you know you're you're writing in a script about kim jong il and the cult so you say kim jong il who is described by the north korean media as peerless patriot son of a thousand years it's you just string all the things if you say it and it's from the KCNA, how can they quarrel? Right. And yet the viewer outside will look and right. say, whoa, wait a minute, what is going on here? So there, there were techniques that we found to sort of communicate some of the idiosyncrasies about the North that yeah. were still allowed one to operate. When Western journalists meet each other in Pyongyang, is the atmosphere competitive or collegial or a mixture of the two? There were very, very few. And so by and large, it was very collegial. Mm. There were very, I mean, there were very few occasions where they would let in more than one at a given time. One at one instance where that was the case was the famous 1995 wrestling oh, yes. festival. Collision in Korea. I, I had Eric Bischoff on the podcast uh, a year or two ago to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, it's very, it's, it's very, and actually Vice TV has done a film about ah. this, which is available. You can see it. I think it's on YouTube. It's they they interviewed all the they interviewed me, but they interviewed all the rest right. and so it's fascinating. Um, but there they let a lot of crews in, but there wasn't anything to be competitive about because you all were taken to the same place, you were all given the same limited opportunities, uh, and that was it. So it's not as if you're in a country where uh you show up at the you know press hotel at the end of the day and compare notes. Well. You know, I got here and I got this and wow, you know, or or you, you're trying to beat your competition, you get better video and so on. That didn't exist because everything was so tightly controlled. So it was much more just swap, you know, the rare occasions. And this included, you know, um, I visited after I left CNN, you know, I was in Pyongyang and I saw the people from the AP and so on. Um, it just just more just the uh, trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah sharing 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 insights and guesses educated or otherwise picking each other's brains as it were pitching each other's brains yeah had you uh, was there anything that you had learned by the time of your last reporting trip to north korea that you wished you had known or thought of on your first trip i don't know if there's any one thing but you know by the time i made my last trip i had left cnn i had spent 2 years researching and writing uh, meltdown, the inside story of the North Korean nuclear crisis, which was itself a fascinating experience because I went back and re-reported events that I had covered, like the six-party talks, and, and, and discovered there was all this amazing stuff going on that people who would not have told me about it at the time were perfectly willing, you know, years later to, to talk about it. So, I mean, that's a whole separate issue of the value of writing a book as opposed to doing a two-minute spot. Yeah. But I think just, you know, after a while, the immediate, when you first go, it's like, this is the weirdest place on the face of the earth. And then when you go after a while and you get beyond that initial impression and you see that in many ways it has its own idiosyncrasies, but it also has its own internal logic. And, it um, you know, you can sort of make, you're, you're, you're just in a better position to assess what you're seeing when the immediate kind of wow factor of here I am for the first time in this place, unlike anywhere else, has gone away. From what you've heard or, or seen or read from the work of later colleagues, has reporting from inside North Korea become harder or easier or in some way different since the time that you were there? You know, there was a period, uh, and it sort of coincides with the, 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 the AP Bureau, um, where, where access seemed to be a bit more regular. I mean, the AP Bureau, you know, the bureau chief, their first bureau chief, Jean Lee, who is a fa fantastic journalist. Yeah, I'm hoping to have her on the show soon. Yeah, she's absolutely terrific. I have great respect for her work. 
Um, but I don't think she sort of lived there permanently. I think she was, I think the, the Bureau meant they had an office and North Korean staff and they, it was much easier, you know, you were out of the country, but if you asked to come in, you could get permission much more easily. I think that's how the Bureau worked. Right. But there was a period where people were going in and out more, where there was more tourism. There was a little bit less of the kind of, um, golly gee, what a strange place quality. Um, but, you know, it, it didn't necessarily, the, 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 the sort of high level politics of it remain very tricky to cover. And uh, go back and read some of the coverage when uh, Kim Jong-il died and Kim Jong-un took over. You had the same litany of Kim Jong-un is strange, weird. We've never seen him before. We don't know anything about him. He's gotta be flaky. Uh, he was not gonna last. And there were some very prominent North Korea experts who publicly, I won't name them, but they wrote, you know, they said six months from now, he's not going to be here. And I think, you know, that maybe if, you know, people had been in the North, they might have had a different sense. And I still think, you know, now, of course, you can't get in because of yeah. COVID, but I still think there, there is a kind of art to reading the North Korean media, which is more... You know, there's 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 more meaning if you know how to parse what's there and who is saying what, which which body is, you know, this or that statement is being attributed to. You can you can put signals together about what's happening um, politically. Um, that's not so easy to do, um, but I think it's it's important to do. Um, but you know, and then, and then there was obviously this this period when when there was the Trump Kim uh, diplomacy yeah. where it looked like the North was coming out of its shell a little bit, and now that's all gone. So so we're kind of back to square one in a way. Of course, COVID makes it much much worse. So every everything has to be done from from the outside, yeah. and uh, yeah. you know it's very hard to generalize. You have and 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 of course the nature of the media landscape has changed very dramatically. I mean, in the '90s you had you know the major mainstream media and the networks, and you know the idea of a dedicated website just to North Korea and so on. All that's new, so yeah. you have resources now that that you didn't have. But it's still, I think, an extremely challenging place. Your final question: What uh, assuming that um, at some point in the future, uh, North Korea reopens, you know, post-COVID and people, uh, foreigners are allowed back in there. What advice would you give to journalists who want to uh, report on uh, or investigate North Korea? And, and part of that is, you know, going inside North Korea and doing some on-the-ground work. Read the history really, really carefully and uh, really... Uh, try to get a deeper understanding of how the North Korean propaganda system works. Because you know, when you are on the ground, it's like working in any other, you know, I wouldn't say any other authoritarian and totalitarian system, but it, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to get uh, information, you're, you're asking questions and you're trying to get information. Being aware of the history uh, allows you to sort of put, you know, raise questions in ways where you might have a better chance of getting an answer without offending somebody, and also allows you to put into context North Korean behavior and patterns of North Korean behavior that you can draw out if you if you look at it and understanding, you know, the the difference between you know, a statement from the foreign ministry as opposed to a statement from the party yeah. as opposed to a statement from the military and varying levels of authoritativeness and so yeah. on um, will allow, you know, allow, I think allow journalists to avoid the mistake of every fire-breathing bit of rhetoric that comes out of KCNA. You look at it, North Korea threatened apocalypse without realizing that the body that said it is, doesn't have the same weight as another body from whom it would really mean something. Uh, so I think, I think you know, the, and then just basic reportorial smarts. Um, get, there's, no there's no magic, uh, you know, tool here. 
Um, but it's just patiently acquiring as much knowledge as, as you can about the system and, and how it works and, and keeping an open mind to get beyond the kind of caricature of North Korea that still seems to shape the narrative in so much of the discussion about the country. And if I can add another point, I would say uh, it'd be good for uh, reporters to get a copy of the NK News organogram that shows you the different leadership structure, who's in the party, who's in the ministry, who's in the different commissions, etc. Uh, right. I've noticed that uh, right. it appears in my camera to be hanging slightly askew on the wall. I'm not sure if that's because my camera's angled wrongly or I taped it up uh, without using a spirit level. That's probably my fault. Uh, <laughs> Or it, or, or, or it might it might be a representative of the slightly askew way that so many people look at North there Korea. There you go. That, I'm going to go with that. That sounds like a much better option. Uh, I want to thank you once again, Mike Chinoy, for coming on the NK News podcast today. You've been very generous with your time. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. And don't forget, listeners, you can find Mike on Twitter at Mike Chinoy, one word. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. And if you have feedback, questions, or further guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Now, thanks as always to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating the podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks and listen again next time. Mm -hmm.